Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 10% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code FOREIGN. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code FOREIGN. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where we're all sitting around waiting for it to be 80 degrees tomorrow. It's supposed to be a nice day. It'll be lousy again a day later, but we are going to pretend it's summer for 24 hours. Let's see what our guests will be doing in the warm weather, starting with our friend Ed Luce, who's back from book leave and just in time to enjoy the weather. Will you be sunbathing tomorrow, Ed? I've already got out my pith helmet and my khaki suit, which of course I have for this kind of weather. Uh, no, I, 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 just, I can't believe it's going to be almost 80 degrees tomorrow when much of America is having freak sort of winter snowstorms. It's just, it's, it's global weirding, I guess. Um, it is. But it's it is. Uh, great to be back, yes. Well, we've, we've missed you. Rosa, how are, how are you going to celebrate Global Warming Day tomorrow? Well, I celebrate global warming every day, David. I, I don't need a special day to do that. Yeah, well, when it's going to be what it is. Anyway, so, you know, you guys may not have noticed, but earlier this week, the president of the United States went to Kiev in Ukraine, walked around a bit, talked to the president, kind of historic visit, took a lot of risks, then went to Poland, talked to 30,000 people in Poland in sort of a counterpoint speech to the Russian president who gave a State of the Union address to a room full of zombies who did not respond to any of his constant stream of lies. Today, the President of the United States spoke to the Bucharest Nine, something that I did not know existed until this morning when I heard it discussed on the television. So how'd, how'd that go, Rosa? How'd that trip go for the President? I think it went pretty well for him. For which, well, wait a minute. Which president are we talking about here, Biden or Putin? No, we're still talking about P- President Biden. But okay, Putin doesn't take trips <laughs> anymore. As you Putin know. doesn't take trips anymore. I thought it went pretty well for President Biden. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, 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 so the, the measure for this administration is always, you know, compared to what and compared to the starting point, right? For this administration inherited an impossible situation, which has only become worse for reasons that are not President Biden's fault and not his administration's fault. 
given that backdrop, I think I think once again, President Biden did as well as anyone possibly could have. I think his trip to Kiev was really a, a morale booster for the beleaguered Ukrainians. Obviously, it's there's not on some level, it's not a big thing. It's not as though he was there and he brought a tank with him or anything like that, which they probably wish he wish he had done while he was at it. But nonetheless, in terms of signaling the U.S.'s commitment, and I think I think his speech and I think his other comments, which were clearly intended to keep keep our allies focused, keep them from just drifting away. Uh, I think that was really important. You know, continue to lay down the marker that this isn't just about that. This is about really, really big moral issues too. You know, this is about genocide and preventing genocide. This is about how we respond to you know egregious war crimes, and that this is this isn't something where anybody should be thinking they can sit by the sidelines. So overall, I thought I thought he did a good job. You know, Ed, I was going to ask you the same question, but basically Rosa said everything that could be said, right? So we, yeah, we should did. probably just stop the podcast right now. Yeah, this will just wrap up. Thanks to everybody for... Now, maybe <laughs> Ed says, what do you have to say, Ed? I have nothing to add to, to what Rosa said, you know, I mean, except just to underline that the risk, as you pointed out in your question, David, the risk was non-trivial. I mean, he spent nine hours on the train there, nine hours on the train back, several hours in, in Kiev, you know, more than 24 hours in a country that is, you know being attacked by the world's other other military superpower. So this was, you know, for a man of, or a woman of 40, a pretty bracing uh, adventure. But for a guy of 80, uh, I thought it showed genuine courage and is more than just a photo. This is much, much more significant than just just a photo op, just a sort of gesture. It, this is a very strong underlining of how important Biden sees this war, as he should. Do you think it's uh, it's significant beyond that, Rosa? I mean, do you think between that and the Munich Security Conference, where we had a bipartisan group of American members of Congress saying they were backing Ukraine, that this really was not just symbolic, but a, an actual message to Vladimir Putin that the U.S. is behind this for as long as it takes? I think it was a message to Vladimir Putin. Absolutely. I think it was a message to our allies that we're not going to we're not going to slack off here and that therefore we expect them to be right there with us. And in, and in a way, just as important, I think it was also a message to those Republicans in Congress who are opposed to additional U.S. assistance to Ukraine and a message that said, you know what? That's not going to be a popular position within this party, and you can try, but we're going to we're going to not let that happen. Ed, you know, he went to Poland and he said, "The state of this alliance is is great." I think had he gone to Poland at almost any other year, with the possible exception of, I don't know, some moment during Lech Walesa's rise, it wouldn't have mattered what the state of the alliance is. But right now, it seems like the U.S. Polish alliance is the centerpiece of NATO. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, it's it's a little known fact that amongst the Polish American community, long back in Joe Biden's career as a senator, he was known as Joseph Badensky because he was always very aware of Poland. Part of part of it was because of his close relationship to Zbigniew Brzezinski. And Brzezinski's son, Mark Brzezinski, is the US ambassador to Poland. And since becoming US ambassador in January of last year, 
He's had Biden twice, which I think has to be a record for any ambassador in their first year. And uh, uh, on each occasion, and it's by coincidence, I've just been talking to Mark Brzezinski on the phone because I've known him, he's a friend, and I've known him for a long time to ask about the Biden trip. He said Biden sort of learns how to pronounce Polish names and stuff. He's really quite clued up about Poland, Poland's history. And even though the party in control of Poland is not an ideological ally of liberal democratic parties elsewhere and uh, elsewhere in the West, it has decisively broken from the serious sort of menace within the West, which is Viktor Orban's Hungary. Um, and that's, that is a step forward for the West because Poland with Hungary was quite a potent challenge to the European Union and, and within NATO. But Hungary on its own is not. It's just a sort of annoying minnow. I mean, you know, it's, Orban is a star on the CPAC Florida conservative circuit. But as a country, Hungary on its own is not serious. Poland is a, a, a serious country. It's taken about 40% of Ukrainians' refugees. And the opinion polls there say they are prepared to take more, which is an extraordinary service to the rest of the West because most of the rest of the West isn't taking too many, with the exception of Germany. So, you know, maybe it's a good thing that this happened under the Law and Justice Party, as a sort of Nixon goes to, Nixon goes to China thing, because, you know, their whole shtick is anti-Western, and now they simply cannot be. They've had Biden twice, saying everything they want to hear. They have had Biden unveil America's first ever permanent base. It's a forward base for the Fifth Corps in Poland. So their anxieties, their historic anxieties about always being abandoned have been allayed. So hopefully this will drain some of the sort of paranoid, nasty nationalism from the Law and Justice Party and really bind Poland into, into the Liberal Democratic Club. So how come you know so much about all these Brzezinski's? I mean, what's <laughs> up with that? It's just one of those quirks of, you know, um, accident of fate. But I am the, the reason I was off for the first part of this year was to complete research on my biography of Zbigniew Brzezinski, which will come out in a year or two. I'm sure we all look forward to that book, don't you, Rosa? I'm going to buy it in multiple copies and give it to all of my friends. Do you know what the, tit the title is? The Poll. It'll have a slightly more descriptive subtitle about Brzezinski and American grand strategy. Yeah, the subtitle will be not the North one, not the South one, <laughs> but the one who was National Security Advisor. Precisely. Yeah, no, that'll be very grabby. Did you know, Rosa, about the Bucharest Nine? No, David, today? I did not. Yeah, and we're Please like foreign more. policy specialists. Well, the Bucharest Nine are the eastern frontier states in NATO, and they're the ones who recognize the danger that's coming from Russia. And so they've been the ones, largely, that have leaned in on this crisis. And, you know, it's not just the Poles, but you have the Baltic states and you have the Slovaks and the Bulgarians, you know, played an important role and, uh, you know, Romanians and so forth. It's a very interesting phenomenon because at one point the Germans were out in the lead or the French wanted to lead or when Britain was part of Europe, you know, they wanted to lead. But, you know, it seems like if the Russian threat remains the central organizing raison d'etre for NATO, 
that it's these eastern states that are that are really going to play a disproportionately large role and i think in terms of us interests that's probably a good thing what do you think rosa Yes, I think that's right. And actually, I, I think it's a good thing for another reason as well. I mean, the on the left here in the United States, there is a, a small but non-silent group of people who I think identify themselves as in the sort of progressive anti-war wing of the Democratic Party who, who remain convinced that any criticism of Russia is this sort of weird Cold War holdover I you know McCarthyist Cold War hold, holdover and that Russia is being unfairly vilified and okay, maybe they do some things that are not so great, but but that this is just a uh, the war in Ukraine right now is a proxy war between the US and Russia, which is being carried out because the US is just kind of mean to Russia based on uh, post-Cold War prejudice. And I think that the fact that we in fact have the Bucharest Nine out in front saying, you know what, we actually have some experience, recent experience as well as historical experience with Russia and how Russia, Russia's expansionism, how Russia treats people when they are in control. And this is not just some kind of weird Cold War hangover to have these anxieties about Russia. This is continuous with leaving, us, leaving aside the troubled history of American anti-communism, McCarthyism. There are a lot of very good reasons to be very, very concerned about Vladimir Putin's Russia and it's it's both its current actions within Ukraine and elsewhere, but also its potential future trajectory. So I think sending that message from somebody who's not Joe Biden, who's not the United States, is one that's actually quite important. And I wish some of my friends on the left in the U.S. would would pay more attention to it. Me too. I wish I wish your friends would pay more attention to you too, Rosa. I, mean, I wish I, everybody would pay more attention it, to me, basically. It, but you know, exactly as well they as well they should. But you know, Ed. I was having a conversation yesterday with a mutual friend, and we were talking about the reaction to Biden's trip and the reaction to this past year of U.S. leadership in NATO. And of course, we were kind of less surprised that the right was behaving, you know, uh, particularly the far right, kind of egregiously, because they do that on everything. And yesterday, of course, you know, you had you know, Paul Gosar saying Russia's not an enemy. You had Ron DeSantis saying the Russian threat is overstated. And so you had some of that nonsense. But this phenomenon Rosa brings up is kind of interesting to me also, because there is a group on the left, or a group of realists, or a group of libertarians, who are saying the U.S., you know, the West is responsible for this, that we shouldn't be there, we should wind it down. And it's everybody from the Quincy Institute to John Mearsheimer and so forth. This person I spoke to yesterday pointed out that all of these groups seem to be getting some money from the Kochs, which I thought was kind of interesting. But I just wonder what you think about the fact that both fringes in the U.S. seem to have taken a stance that seems to be kind of sort of pro-Russia. Yeah, I think for with very different motivations, although they sort of they somehow meet in their opposition to this war to America's stance in backing Ukraine, there's very, very different motivations. On the right, it's it's that Russia sort of stands for some Eurasianist, Christian, racially thinly veiled backlash to liberal democracy. 
Um, Anti people who they're very much against people who tell you their pronouns. So, you know, there is that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, Putin in his speech, his State of the Union, whatever they call it this week, you know, met, he attacked the Church of England for exploring the idea of having a gender neutral God. You know, I'm surprised he didn't, you know, invade Moldova because, you know, they're editing Roald Dahl's books. He's got, he's got a Ron DeSantis vocabulary down pat. Absolutely, um, and is, which is fascinating in and of itself. It really is. And, and it's, it's, it's sophisticated. It, it works. And, you know, you do get, it's not sort of freakish to see Russian flags at some of these MAGA rallies. So there is that on the right. Listen to Josh Hawley. Listen, listen, don't listen, but sort of acknowledge the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene and people are saying that, you know, this war detracts from building the border wall or protecting people from chemicals in, in Ohio. I mean, you know, it, it's absurd, but they are against America's funding of this war. They think this political traction. On the left, you know, I think there is this sort of Chom what I've called Chomsky-style negative exceptionalism. The exceptionalist American story says that everything good and all universal principles come from America and that America is the prime actor and everybody else is the effect. And the negative exceptionalists think the same thing, except that all bad things come from America and everyone else is just sort of an effect. They're not, they're not agents in their own right. They don't make their own history. Everything bad that happens in the world comes from America. And therefore, anybody opposed to America or whom America opposes has to be good, like Assad. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of fairly cartoonish how some of the hard left Glenn Greenwald types think. Well, it's the whole libertarian thing. The Tulsi Gabbards are also in that group as, as, as well. Um, they, they are. And of course, they do meet at the extreme because they're all now appearing on Tucker Carlson. It's just fascinating phenomenon because 50 years ago, no one would think could be supportive of Russia at any time. And Russia hadn't been in the midst of committing a ton of war crimes and invading a European country and all that. And here we are, and there's a, the, the unanimity that we didn't expect in Europe, but some division, some division here in the United States. Rosa, in, in, in listening to the president and, and sort of marking this first anniversary of this phase of the war, and I think people are missing a point here, by the way, I would just underscore that February is also the ninth anniversary of the beginning of the war. So this has been going on a long, long time. Do you think we're celebrating prematurely how well we've kept ourselves together and that we really should be a, a little more circumspect because this could go on for a long, long time? Yes, but no. Do I think that it's, I certainly think it's premature to assume that this degree of unity will continue. I think it could very well fracture in all kinds of ways. That being said, I also think it was smart to celebrate our unity at this point, because I think there is a degree to which that kind of uh, rhetorical praise for everybody, for sticking together for, through thick and thin, et cetera, is part of what makes it harder for people to then back off, right? Because they become trapped and, you know, they're, oh, yes, absolutely right, great. We sure are good people. And it becomes, it becomes a little, it becomes that much harder for them to then say a week later, we'll actually know. So I think strategically it was a smart 
way to approach it, even though I, I, I think it will help shore up that dedication, although I don't think it's obviously any guarantee against the various forces that, that may yet fragment that coalition, including domestic forces within many of the countries that are part of it. Well, of course, you know, Ed, in two years, Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump could be president. Both of them seem to be on the other side of this thing. Yeah, they do. Ron DeSantis can't fully own being on the other side in the way that Josh Hawley or, or, or Marjorie Taylor Greene does. He's trying to sort of have it both ways. But there are sort of complexities to his very studied ambivalence on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, for example, the Florida Public Employees Pensions Fund hasn't disinvested from Russia. Most American state funds have. The the Floridian one hasn't. And that issue keeps periodically um, surfacing. He is scared, and you know he's clearly a very skilled politician with his own ability to take the temperature. He is scared of offending the MAGA wing of the party. And that, to me, is the most eloquent proof of where the MAGA wing of the party stands. Trump, of course, is, is far more overt. He was, if you remember, February 24th last year, do you remember the gleefulness with which Trump proclaimed Putin will roll up Ukraine It'll, in no time? And, uh, you know, the, this, this, this is just a, I forget his exact words, but this is just such an impressive president. You watch Putin. There was a, there was a, a, a schadenfreude about Ukraine's impending fate that I think is, isn't politically calculated with Trump. It's just he means it. Um, he just likes watching catastrophes unfold. He just loves and he loves it when people are really suffering. It's more fun that way. It's more fun that way. And of course, there's the added sort of bonus of payback to Zelensky, who didn't give him the dirt on Biden in that perfect phone call. But you're right. should have done me that little favor. That little favor, That one little favor. Just a tiny, tiny thing. Insignificant. Um, But... (laughs) You know, it, it is a potential, you know, it is a potential game changer, a Trump or a DeSantis victory in 2024 on the ground in Central Europe, in Ukraine. It is a potential game changer. Absolutely is and should be deeply disturbing, particularly, by the way, if the U.S. Senate switches over, which could, could, could also happen. So this is normally where we take a little bit of a break, even though it's a slightly shorter version of the podcast. We take a break. Say goodbye to the general public. Say you want to listen to the whole podcast, you know, become a member. It's like $5 a month. And uh, there's a huge amount of extra content. And as we add new podcasts, and I think I can uh, safely say that in the next month, we're going to add several new podcasts, you'll get even more bonus content. So now's the time to join up. If you're a member, stand by. We'll be right back. <laughs> 